You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Vanessa Bonds, who is a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University and also the author of this book right here, You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters. So I enjoyed this book. And, you know, in in business schools, we spend a lot of time teaching people how to acquire power, how to acquire influence, right? How to have a bigger impact. And what is refreshing about this book is that you talk about the influence and power that people already have and that maybe they don't realize that they have. And on the one hand, this is optimistic because it's, oh, wow, we can really do things we didn't know we could do. But it's also a bit cautionary because you tell people that you know they're having impacts that go well beyond what they think they're having for better or for worse, and sometimes for worse. And with awareness of one's greater power comes great responsibility. So you, you survey a pretty wide range of research areas and stitch them together in this book. And so I enjoyed all that. And of course, you talk about your own experiments. So when you're teaching people, do, are business school students different? I mean, do they think of themselves, like when you talk to business people or the kind of people that seek out courses on influence and power, are they more aware or, or less aware of the influence that, that they can have? You know, it's funny. I just recently was talking to someone at Cornell's business school who did a survey of all the MBA students and asked them what they were most interested in learning sort of as an extracurricular outside of their courses. And she said the number one thing that they came up with was influence. They wanted to get better at persuasion and influence. And I'm not sure, but it seems like a stereotype or an expectation that if you're in business, if you're sort of a true business person that you can negotiate, of course, influence people, you know, it's about gaining power and these sorts of influence skills. So I definitely think that there's this idea that there are certain tricks to influence that you can learn in business school and sort of a very narrow sense of what influence looks like. It's like the movie Wall Street or something and these inspirational speeches or even like the Wolf of Wall Street where there's people who are just giving these big persuasive sort of speeches. And, you know, as I talk about in the book, I am really conceptualizing influence in such a broader way. So it's not just about these times where it's like, I need to be able to stand in front of people and influence them. I need to convince someone to totally change their position on this topic. But it's also all the times we just ask people for things throughout the day. It's all the ways we model behavior that other people follow along and copy. It's the way we run meetings and either create space or don't. So it's all the sort of little ways that social psychologists have studied influence for a really long time. But I think that when we're thinking of the psychology definition of influence, it's a lot broader and more subtle, whereas the business school, like MBA sort of idea of influence is this more narrow sort of perspective. And so I think part of seeking out courses like that is because they're trying to develop this very specific sort of skill set. Yeah, you mentioned extracurricular, but I think a lot of business schools have incorporated directly into the curriculum. I know at, at 
Berkeley, one of the most popular courses is one called Power and Politics. You know, you're making that distinction between kind of persuasion, which is what we think of as kind of the traditional skill or rhetoric, which is very much built on creating that speech or crafting that perfect memo. And, you know, one of the points that we'll get to, I think, is that people don't really actually pay very careful attention to anything that you say. And and I found that a little bit discouraging, even though you put the, an, an optimistic spin on it. But I think, you know, the way you begin the book is you talk a bit about underconfidence. Now, I interviewed Don Moore uh, a couple months ago, and we talked about kind of overconfidence. And, and he mentioned that underconfidence is maybe just as much of a problem as overconfidence. And this underconfidence that you reference is really in, in the social domain. And and I think it, it kind of relates to some of the stuff that I've talked to people about networks and how we systematically underestimate our popularity within social networks. Is that because we focus on kind of the mean number of friends instead of the median? Like, why is it that we tend to think that, you know, everyone else is more popular than we are? Is that also something that kind of varies depending on personality types or profession. Yeah, I'm not sure that people, when they make these calculations, are <laughs> as sophisticated as sort of focusing on the mean versus the median, for example. But so Sebastian Derry, who's a graduate student here who works with Tom Gilovich and Shai Davide on some of this work, has shown that we tend to underestimate of our social networks our centrality in our social networks, and also just our general social sociability. So like how much we actually spend time with the people in our social networks. And the way they talk about it is we really compare ourselves to exemplars. So for example, when we think of Twitter followers, or we think of how many people have the most friends, we think of that person who has tons of followers. We think of that person who just is constantly out and about and seems super social. And when we compare ourselves to these sort of exemplars, then we always fall short. And so we, by default, think that we're under social and less popular than average. And as you said, average, like those super influencers pull up the average for sure. So if you actually look at average, most of us are below average, but just because of those exemplars. But in general, if you look at the median and if you look at these samples that they look at where they actually say like within this sample are you do you think that you're below average or above average and they find that the average person says that they're below average in the sample which now we know is logically impossible and so they still find these kinds of effects and that's their explanation that we're just focused on the most social people we can think of but when it comes to estimating our abilities like our ability to drive or capacity as professors or as investors or whatever we we tend to overplace our position in in the hierarchy so why what is it about kind of this social capital that causes us to underplace where we are in in the, in the pecking order yeah there's so there's Sebastian Derry and his colleagues explanation and then I have a slightly different explanation that I've used before so their explanation is basically that, and they actually compare in their studies, they have these domains that are non-social, for example, how much do you cook compared to the average person? And then you get this overconfidence effect that people think they're better chefs and they think that they cook at home more. But then you ask them, like, how much do you go out to restaurants? And they start saying, I'm under a social in terms of the number of times they go out to restaurants with other people. And the way they talk about it is really that when we are making assessments about our individual abilities, 
We look inwards and we seek out our own previous memories of things we did, times we drove, times we cooked, times we taught, for example. But when we are making judgments about how social we are, because it's a social category, we don't look inwards at ourselves. We look outwards and compare ourselves to the sociability of other people. And so that's sort of their explanation for it is just it's a different sort of comparison you're drawing the information from. I actually like thinking about it in a slightly different way. And it's not really, it's not quite the same as their network studies. But so in a lot of my studies, we also underestimate our influence. And that's in actual interactions that we have with people. We think that our, our words aren't going to sort of land as heavy as they do on other people. We think that we can't get other people to do things as much as we actually can. And the way I like to think about it is that when you see these overconfidence effects or like illusory control effects, for example, you're really making judgments about inanimate objects in many cases. Yeah, so we like we think so we think we have more control over our vehicle, but we think we yeah. have less control over kind of other people. Exactly. Yeah. So there isn't this element of perspective taking, which we know from a long history of research people are terrible at. And so, you know, when we're making judgments about these inanimate objects, we feel like we have more control over them. But when we make judgments about people, because we are so bad at perspective taking and there's this extra element there, that's where we sort of underestimate. And you mentioned this thing called the invisibility cloak illusion, right? Where I guess some people think that everybody's always looking at them, but then others underestimate the extent to which others are maybe looking at them. Or, or do we underestimate, overestimate, depending on whether or not we're thinking about negative aspects or positive aspects of ourselves? Yeah, that's part of it. So I would say it's mostly about how self-conscious we feel about a particular thing or about ourselves. And so basically the invisibility cloak illusion is Erica Boothby's finding with her colleagues. And she shows that when we're going throughout our day, if we're just sitting on the subway, if we're just walking around the park with our headphones on, we think that people aren't really paying attention to us. We feel like we're kind of walking around with this invisibility cloak, when in fact, more people are paying attention to us than we tend to think. And of course, immediately, anyone who's familiar with social psychology and a lot of the egocentric bias literature thinks of the contrasting effect, which is the spotlight effect, which is by Tom Gilovich, one of my colleagues here, and his co-authors. And they really find the opposite, that people think that people are looking at them more than they actually are. And so the big question is, like, why would you get one and what under what circumstances would you get one or the other? And really, the way Erica Boothby has reconciled this is by showing that when you give someone a reason to be really self-conscious about something, for example, you give them a different set of clothing than what they came in with. And it's, for example, a t-shirt like in the spotlight effect studies that makes them embarrassed, right? It's got like someone on the front that's embarrassing to be wearing. Then you get the spotlight effect. You feel like everyone's looking at that embarrassing thing. But if you're just wearing your ordinary clothes and going about your ordinary day, then you get the invisibility cloak illusion where actually people are paying more attention to you, but you're so acclimated to what you're doing that you're not really paying attention to that. But the, the, when people are walking around with the backpack and knocking stuff over or, or when you know they're walking down the sidewalk without any awareness that somebody's trying to get past them, that's just egocentricity, right? That's just failure to recognize that one is having kind of an impact on other people around them, right? 
I mean, I think they're both actually examples of egocentric bias to some extent where you see what you see and we're really bad at recognizing what other people are seeing. And of course, the thing that I like to add in the book is this idea that one of the things that other people are seeing is we often don't, because when we look out through our eyes, we don't see ourselves in that scene. And so when we're exhibiting the invisibility cloak illusion, we don't realize that everybody else sees us. Like we're blocking people, we're knocking things over, you know, we're having this impact. I, in the book, I also talk about like this Mr. Magoo kind of metaphor where we're just kind of walking through the world, getting in people's way, knocking things over, creating chaos, but we are totally oblivious to it because we don't realize the role we play in other people's worlds. Yeah, it's, it's refreshing to because you're talking about, I don't know how representatives the, the different samples are that we get to work with when we're doing these kind of social psychology experiments. And uh, certainly when you're surrounded, as I am with kind of business school students, I know that they're unrepresentative. You know, you talk about this kind of liking gap and this real fixation with embarrassment. And, you know, of course, I look around and I see, I see in certain people, you know, the lack of capacity for embarrassment and maybe an overestimation of the extent to which they're liked. And I think maybe that's just because those people are more salient. You remember them more. But tell me this, this liking gap. Why is it that people underestimate the extent to which others, you know, what is this? Does this bias, if it is a bias, serve any kind of function? I mean, if we tried to apply some functional analysis to it, you know, would it be better to err on the side of underestimating how much you're liked versus overestimating how much you're liked? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, first, to I like that, the liking gap. So, I think, so that's also by Erica Boothby, and her initial studies were done mostly with undergrads, the usual sort of samples that we're used to. But it's also been replicated in really different samples. So for example, there was a developmental psychology paper that came out after showing that even kids show the liking gap. So it seems to be something that is pretty consistent across populations. And I would be very curious about the MBAs because I think they can appear confident, but they might not always feel it inside. Well, is extroversion correlated in any way? With, yeah. Is there something going on there? So basically, just to give you the, a recap, so in Erica's studies, basically, she had people have these interactions, just like a conversation with a stranger, ranging from, you know, a really brief conversation to some that were even longer. And when the two people were separated, they were each given questionnaires. And you basically guessed how much the other person enjoyed the conversation and how much they liked you. And the other person said how much they enjoyed the conversation, how much they liked you. And in the comparisons, there was this bias, the systematic sort of difference where people underestimated how much the other person enjoyed the conversation and liked them. And they did find an effect for extroversion where they found that introverts were more likely to show this bias. So everybody showed the bias, but if you were introverted, you were even, that your bias was even bigger. And the explanation was really that we tend to focus on all the things we feel like we said wrong or those awkward moments or those slips of the tongue. Whereas the other person was really just more focused on this global sort of, that was a pleasant interaction. I think it could be functional. I don't know of any data to support that, but I could imagine that if you're checking in constantly to make sure that you are doing things that make other people like you, that keeps you in tune with the group and keeps you caring about other people. So I imagine that probably makes us better at sort of maintaining social relationships than the opposite if we just don't care every time we slip up. And you said like this focus on embarrassment, 
Dr. Keltner, for example, talks about embarrassment as this sort of binding moral emotion. And so in the same way that every little embarrassing thing we do, we sort of acknowledge to the group by showing embarrassment that we care about the group, that we care about social norms, that we didn't mean to violate them. In that same way, I think we these little sorts of the focus on our faux pas may do something similar. Like, I care about whether you like me, you know, it, it seems like a similar sort of, of thing. I wonder, is it, you know, in psychology, we talk about personalities as being something, you know, deeply fundamental and that personalities will then lead to the kind of the bias and beliefs. Is there a sense in which it goes the other way around? In other words, if is the introversion maybe a product of this belief? Can you debias people? Can you get them to, if you show them this data that, hey, in fact, people enjoy talking to you, will, will people be more likely to go out and have these conversations? That's part of what we, in school, we certainly, I've had a lot of conversations about debiasing and whether or not it's actually something that you can, you know, you can do in kind of an academic setting. Yeah, my experience with most of the cognitive biases, if you lump this into those psychological cognitive biases, is that just telling people them doesn't really do much to alleviate them. Once you're in that moment, it still happens. And so I actually think one thing that they do in their study, and actually one thing I even suggest at like the end of the book in a different sort of context, is picturing the situation from an observer perspective. Because what they find is that if you have a third-party observer watching the interaction, like watching a videotape, they see how much the other person liked you because they're not in your head, you know, that the sort of self-conscious replaying of everything that you did wrong. And so to the extent that you can sort of take a step back and remember how you feel when you're interacting with someone, how you don't judge them for every little thing, how like a third party might view that interaction. I think anything that sort of gets you out of your own head is helpful for distancing and sort of recognizing. Well, at the end of the book, you talk about this rejection therapy. I found that fascinating. I mean, we talk about exposure therapy when it comes to things like allergies and, and, and phobias and so forth. And this idea of seeking out rejection, you know, it reminded me, I think that there's this whole literature on, on like dating where people are supposed to go out and get rejected or people who are applying for jobs, they have to systematically go out and have people reject them in their applications and, and get used to it. And here in Silicon Valley, we all talk about, you know, fail fast, get comfortable failing. And then the more, more you fail, the more you learn. So maybe talk a bit about this rejection therapy. And this is a real thing. It's not just a meme. It's not just a, a TED talk, but it's, is this actually something that could be more widely adopted by people who maybe are a little hesitant to kind of use their influence in, in positive ways? So it's definitely a poppy sort of, it's not like a true therapy, but what's interesting is it does have so many elements that you said of exposure therapy, where you just keep exposing yourself to that thing. And often in exposure therapy, you do something like you take Xanax when you're exposed to a spider so you don't have that physiological arousal, or you start small and you work your way up. One of the things that is so interesting about rejection therapy is that, first of all, it's been done in these very like silly ways. So you try to get yourself rejected every day at like a game, basically. And you do just whack, you make wacky requests, right? You go to like Costco. The purpose isn't to get used to rejection, but to realize you're not actually going to get rejected as much as you think you are. Yeah, the point originally, the guy who came up with it, Jason Comley, wanted to get comfortable with rejection, but he found that it was actually harder to get rejected than he thought. And these sort of wacky requests, like people actually 
react much more positively than we think. In our heads, we kind of have this idea that this is going to be this really awkward, terrible interaction. People are going to get mad at us. But usually people are quite warm. They find it funny. Even if they say no, they do it in a much more sort of positive way. In that way, and the way exposure therapy works, it's like that thing you're scared of, you get exposed to it. But at the same time, it's not as bad as you imagined. So I do talk quite a bit about the caveats of this. This is not like necessarily the best way to learn about every kind of way in which people are more likely to agree to us than we realize. But it does seem pretty effective. Like people do have these sort of aha moments where like, oh, wow, people really are going to agree to me more than I expect when I ask them for things. But I also talk about what you sort of learn from that, right? Does that mean you go out and just ask indiscriminately for things? Or do you actually take a step back and think, oh, wow, people find it hard to say no. So maybe I need to be a little more cautious when I ask for things. Yeah. So we, we underestimate the extent to which people will respond positively to, to requests. But is that because you explore both possibilities? One, that people are nicer than we, we think they are, but it's also because we they fear embarrassment. They don't really have, there's that famous copy experiment, right? Where you, you know, you ask somebody if you can butt into the copy line and people just aren't prepared to say no. People are, are reluctant to say no. And so the, it's not that they're nice. It's just that they're unprepared or weak in some way and vulnerable to you taking advantage of them. Yeah. When you think about, so that Ellen Langer copier study, that's where people came up with an excuse. Sometimes it was a nonsensical excuse, right? Excuse me, can I cut in front of you to make copies because I need to make copies? It's just, it doesn't make sense. Everyone needs to make copies. But over 90% of people agreed and let the person cut in front of them. And as you said, part of it is that actually we think saying no is the default when we go to ask someone for something. But saying no is the hard thing. Saying yes is the easier thing. Yes is just yes, the person cuts. You might be a little annoyed, but saying no, you need to come up with the words. You risk the potential for a confrontation. Often we want to make an excuse so we don't make the person feel bad. So we have to come up with what that excuse might be. And we tend to forget how hard it is to come up with a no. And so there's the awkwardness. There's the mindlessness of it that it just takes effort to come up with a no. There is research, for example, by Dale Miller and Rebecca Ratner showing that we also underestimate how nice people are, basically how pro-social they are. So it's not that's not also part of it. But in a lot of my research, and I think the Langer study as well kind of highlights that too, there is also this element of not only are people doing this because they're so nice, but it's also just hard to say no. It's awkward. It's embarrassing. You have to find the words. It's an uphill battle to say no. And it's just easier to say yes and just comply a lot of the time. One of the things you point out is that it's a whole lot easier to say no through email. I've certainly discovered this in my work. If I zap off an email to a administrator and say, hey, you know, you can make a request or whatever, the default can, is easily no. But if you go to visit them in their office and ask in person, then the default is yes. And to me, I always was puzzled by this because it, it occurred to me that what the administrator is doing is sending the message, if you use up a big chunk of my time, you'll get what you want. But if you're polite and just try to send me an email rather than book an hour-long meeting, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say no. So it's basically an open invitation for everybody to bombard your calendar with meetings. <laughs> so do you think people are aware that's the incentive. They're basically rewarding people that essentially lobby them and use more of their time and emotional resources. I really don't think people are thinking about it. I think that is true. And I actually think about another consequence of it, which is the inequities it creates, right? That 
people who have the time to actually get a face-to-face meeting, people who feel more comfortable, right? You might get gender differences with people who are like, I don't want to be too pushy. And I actually talk about that as well in the book. These examples of learning about this makes, in one case, one woman who's doing this sort of rejection therapy task say, I'm going to take a step back. Like, People find it hard to say no, whereas the man is like, yeah, we should ask for things all the time. And again, those are anecdotal sort of examples. But there's reason to think that there could be gender differences. There could be race differences in who's comfortable with doing this sort of more, you could say, assertive approach of like, I'm going to book time. I'm going to, you know, go and ask. And then you get the people who are asking in the more effective way, get more of the resources. And again, that can contribute to these sorts of inequities. Yeah. One of the things that I advise people in, in managers when I work with them is, you know, don't listen to the people who surround you, surround yourself with the people who are worth listening to, because essentially what happens is that FaceTime basically dictates what you do. And the fact that people happen to be co-located with you and both temporally and spatially, then those people are ultimately going to have the biggest impact on you. And that's not something necessarily that you chose, but rather just something you defaulted into. Absolutely. And this is something I've been talking to people a lot about with these sort of hybrid work environments, right? So the people who you are surrounded by, just by default, they're the people whose opinions you're going to hear more often. You can go into meetings where you've got half of the group online, half the group in the room, but that group in the room has probably already talked about it in the hallway. They probably already have their opinion. They probably already shaped the decision. So I do think that's just something to be super conscious of, the fact that We are so swayed by the people in our immediate presence. And you talk a little bit about kind of the fear of of public speaking. And I think you're, in the book, you're trying to alleviate that fear of public speaking by, by pointing out that people don't really listen to you. And of course, I took it the other way, which is so, I've always found it so frustrating that you can spend all this time trying to put together a very articulate argument. You can work really carefully to make sure that everything's tight and seamless and that you've thought through every possible objection. But at the end of the day, what people come away with is just whatever the gist of your message is and means that if they like the gist, <laughs> they're going to you know, go along with you. And all that work that you put into careful argumentation is kind of wasted in, in, in most cases, right? So I wouldn't say it's wasted. I think part of the gist is like this person came up with this argument. I liked it and I found it very convincing. And then, you know, if someone says, oh, what was so convincing? I just remember they gave a lot of reason. You know, we might not remember the actual details, but I still think making that strong argument makes that it adds to the gist as well. And it was a good argument. But to some extent, people will. The gist could be the final conclusion. Or the gist could be the affect that they experience while they're listening to the person. And certainly with emails, I think, as you mentioned, like all that careful argumentation is oftentimes just skipped over and you get a two seconds later, you get a response saying whatever, meaning that they didn't really read your careful email. Yeah. And that's another place where we think and we show that people actually don't differentiate between asking in person or asking over email. They actually think it's going to be equally effective. And I think part of the reason is you think you can lay out your argument like the super airtight argument. How could anyone say no to this? But it's just so much easier, as we talked about, to say no to an email take your time, think of how you're going to say it, feel okay, then if someone's standing right in front of you, even if they're not making the most perfectly articulate argument. The other thing that you default, not just to liking people, but you also default to believing people. And this was a little bit, especially in these times of division and suspicion and you know, warring camps of, of belief, it's important to be reminded of this. This idea that it just requires a whole lot less effort to 
kind of assume that somebody's telling the truth as opposed to assume that they're lying to you. This makes conversation possible, but it also kind of opens up the door to whether psychopaths or parasites, or I used to work in competitive intelligence and uh, that whole industry was built on more or less prying information from people that they really didn't want to give over, right? And, and so you talk about Adam Mitnick and how he was very good at getting people to fork over passwords and, and so forth. So is this, I know Robert Frank talks a lot about the frequency dependence and how it basically makes sense as long as there's a relatively small number of fraudsters in the environment and liars in the environment. Is this something which is potentially dangerous that we kind of default to belief? Is the opposite, which we see in a lot of these political debates, equally harmful? Yeah. And I will sort of add the caveat that we default to belief when we don't already have a reason to be distrustful, right? So like if I turn on Fox News and I hear something, my default is probably to be skeptical as opposed to believe it. Whereas if I turn on like my preferred news station, then my default is to believe. But yeah, and one of the things I do talk about is the fact that when we hear these things, we immediately think of politics just because that's so salient right now in terms of information and distrust and things like that. But really most of the things we talk about are other things. Who got promoted at work, we talk about you know, what someone was wearing. We talk about our kids, you know, we talk about all these other things where we wouldn't actually be able to have reasonable conversations if we thought that every time someone said, oh, my kid scored a goal in soccer last night, you know, that they were lying about it. So there has to be an element of sort of this default to truth to some extent, but I definitely do think it also has an element of danger. And I actually, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, there's just so much information right now as we all try to calculate the risks that we're comfortable with and make plans for the future and things like that. And so I've had several conversations with friends recently, like intelligent people who I feel like would vet sources and we're all kind of getting our information from different places. And we'll have these conversations where we'll say, oh, I heard a vaccine for kids under 11 is coming by this date. And I'll hear that. And I noticed that I will pass that information on to like three other friends and later, you know, read an article that totally contradicts what my original friend said. And so it's still like, I just default like, oh, I just assume that this person read this thing and they probably did and it probably was okay. But then there were other contradictory sort of articles out there as well. So it just shows you how, even when we're well-meaning, even when it's just between friends, even when it's not these big political camps, that we still might pass along information that is, you know, not entirely accurate because we just assume default to belief and then also want something to say to the next person, right? Like we're having a conversation. What am I going to do? Not bring up the thing somebody else just told me? Like, that's just what we do. Well, that's sort of a gossip and rumors, right? Rumors can spread very quickly and gossip is is infectious. And so presumably it's relatively easy to plant faulty information, knowing that it's going to spread rather rapidly. Could this be why we're overly cautious in our social interactions and that we're going to err on the side of not you know, offending anybody because it might serve as fodder for these rumors and these potential nefarious gossip about us. Since it's so easy to spread bad information, you know, we want to do everything in our power to not let this get any oxygen. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I definitely think it's riskier, right, to contradict what someone says to you, right? You risk the potential of starting an argument and then they tell the next person that you were kind of a jerk the other day. 
And then all of a sudden that gets passed along. So I do think that sort of, again, that social glue that we always try to keep entwined in our social net could keep us from contradicting or just not believing what people are telling us. You talk about why people tend to shout and why they tend to be more aggressive and vocal sometimes when they're communicating. And and you say that this is really a result of kind of underconfidence, right? And a lack of belief in the persuasiveness of what they're saying. And then you talk about how if you're trying to give someone advice, often making that advice forceful is exactly the wrong approach. Yeah. And so I think it's really an interesting combination of a lot of Don Moore's work on overconfidence, where we feel like we're less biased than anybody else. Like I have the right take on this. I know it's the right thing to do here. But also this underconfidence in our social influential sort of capacities where I'm sure I know what's best for you. I'm sure I know the right thing for you to do. But I also don't think you're going to listen to me. And so I raise my voice. I assume you're going to argue against me more than you actually are. And yeah, so you get this sort of perfect storm of these two things colliding and leading people to shout in some cases. And so one of the things I say is that underconfidence can lead you to push too hard because you're expecting pushback or you think you're shouting into the void, right? Like we also underestimate how many people are paying attention to our social media posts and things like that. So we think we could just put whatever out there or we just don't say anything at all. And it kind of, there's not like a clear, like someone assumption that maybe someone would listen to me if I sort of just came out and took this middle road. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about why people don't say no to some of these ludicrous requests that you make. You talk about this experiment where you even asked people to vandalize library books and relates, of course, to the famous Milgram experiment. But I was wondering if you could talk about this. And maybe on the flip side, there's the part about understanding the ease with which you can ask people to do things. But maybe should people be more aware of how susceptible they are to going along with the the program? I think that the original Milgram study was designed in part to make us aware of how easily we can be influenced and how when we're not in that situation, we like to think we would never do that. I would never follow orders. But then when you're in that situation, you do follow orders. So part of your book, I think, is not just about educating people about the influence they have, but also educating them about how easily influenced they can be by others, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just to give some background of that study, that is probably my favorite study that I've ever run, the book vandalism study. And it was meant to be a take on Milgram. So Milgram was more about obedience and the experimenter was in the lab coat and had this position of authority. We really wanted to see a couple of things. We wanted to see, first of all, we always think about the participant in that study. What would the experimenter think? Like the person doing the asking, we could flip the script in that way. So we wanted to see if we had our participants take these fake library books, go into libraries, go up to strangers and say, hey, I'm playing a prank on my friend. Will you just write the word pickle in this library book and pen, hand over the book with a pen, what they thought people would do and then what people would actually do. And so what we found was that they thought most people would say no, not surprisingly. Most of us would think most people would say no to that. But in fact, most people said yes to that request. They vastly underestimated sort of their impact on these other people. And so there are a few interesting things there. First of all, a lot of those participants came back and said things to us that were like, wow, I can't believe people are that unethical or like people are willing to do these things. Like they really were sort of pointing to that person. Whereas those people, when they recorded their responses, a lot of them did a lot of the Milgram type things. You know, they said this doesn't feel right. I don't think we should be doing this. They clearly were uncomfortable proceeding, 
but they felt like they couldn't say no. And so there is this, again, this element that it's even when something's really uncomfortable to do, it's so hard to say no that we'll still go along with it. And so, as you said, I do think a major takeaway is not only that people, there's kind of two, that people will find it harder to say no to us than we realize. So when we ask for things and someone goes along with it, we may assume they're doing it totally voluntarily, but at times they may not feel like that. But then the flip side is if we are so easily cajoled into doing things like that, how can we be better when we get into situations like that at saying no? And I think a big part of that is it goes back to what we were talking about finding the words. So many of us in that moment, we don't know what to say. We're worried about insinuating something negative about the other person. And so we want to come up with a, a script or something to say that sort of takes saves face for the other person. Even in that, in that kind of situation, we're still worried about saving face for the other person, saving face for us so we don't look like a pansy or something or whatever we're worried about. And so I do think preparation is a major part of it. And I think that, for example, even in the Milgram studies, if they knew they were going into a situation like that where they would have been asked for that and they could have thought about like, how, what am I going to say to get out of that, that they might have had better luck. And that also goes into, you know, we we're talking about John Sabini's sort of interpretation of the Milgram studies that it's really, he really felt like it was these participants who were so embarrassed to speak up against the uh, experimenter. And I think that having a script makes it easier. You know, you're not just struggling to find the words. And of course, this has obvious implications for sexual relationships, right? So on the one hand, somebody who is propositioning someone, they're assuming that the person on the receiving end of that proposition is only going to do something that they really want to do. And that, that person, when they're thinking about that situation hypothetically, they also think that they're only going to do the thing that they would really want to do. So kind of both of them are underestimating the extent to which the situation is going to dictate what happens and the fear of rejection and embarrassment or the fear of actually rejecting and embarrassing somebody is going to kind of take over and override what might be their more persistent or actual or real strong preferences. Yeah. And I think especially even in these, I think it's all the time, but especially in romantic situations, there's such an emphasis on how hard it is to be rejected romantically. And we're so aware of like, that's so painful to be rejected. And we forget, especially when we risk being rejected, how hard it is to do the rejecting, to be the rejector. We have some studies where we have people recall times where they were rejected or they rejected somebody else and tell us about how painful the other person found it to say no. And the person who was rejected thinks it was pretty easy, you know, like, oh, yeah, they just said no to me. And we also asked, were there any consequences? And they think they didn't avoid me after they didn't talk to people about this to cope or anything. But when people recall doing the rejecting, they say it was a lot harder to actually reject the person. It was awkward. They avoided the person after they coped by talking to other people around them. And so there is sort of this element of we tell a lot of people to just go for it when you're interested in someone, like just find out if they like you, right? Just go for it. But in certain contexts, especially like in working contexts, when you do that, it's not just about you. It's also about the way in which that makes the other, puts the other person in an uncomfortable position as well. And we underestimate that. 
And as you said, even that person can underestimate that. So there's some amazing studies by Marianne LaFrance on how we underestimate the extent to which we would stand up against inappropriate comments and being sexually harassed in an interview. And she like miraculously got through ethics, a study where she actually had interviewers sexually harass applicants for a, an RA position. Yeah, I don't know. How, <laughs> how did they get that through the IRP? I don't, I don't understand. I have no idea. But she did. And people thought that they would speak up. They thought that they would feel anger. But they actually felt afraid in the moment, you know, and that anxiety led them to just sit there and smile awkwardly instead of saying, you shouldn't be asking this. One of the more interesting implications of this work is corruption. And you talk about the Moody's example, and I want you to get into that. When we look at things from afar and we call them kind of corruption and we see only the kind of negative aspects of it or nepotism or preferential treatment, an entirely different way of looking at it is that these are people that are doing favors. There are people that are being generous. I mean, if, if you go to someone who's providing a service and you ask for special treatment and they give you special treatment in that moment, they don't think of themselves necessarily as negatively affecting all the other people they're not giving the special treatment to. They have a warm glow associated with the giving of that special treatment. So tell us about the kind of Moody's example. I used to teach courses on the financial crisis and I never actually took that perspective that maybe it was just people trying to be nice. (laughs) to the issuers of the securities. But I think it's very persuasive. I I know the the story of Anderson and Enron, where the auditor from Anderson became enmeshed in the Enron community and became friends with all the Enron people and played golf with them and essentially got Stockholm syndrome and gave them very nice uh, grades on their uh, faulty accounting. But I'm sure that this person thought of himself as being a team player and being being a nice guy when in fact he was jeopardizing the investments of many other people. Yeah, it's interesting. And so you're referring to the the New York Times um, had this interpretation of part of what happened around the financial housing collapse a number of years ago, where Moody's, the credit, credit rating agency, basically rated some countrywide financial bundles as worse than Countrywide would have liked. And so country, a representative at Countrywide called up Moody's and they changed their ratings for no reason, but other, as you said, potentially just to do a favor for this other person at Countrywide. And I think it definitely speaks to some of the things we were talking about earlier that like you can get when there's someone right there in your immediate vicinity, sort of you get this tunnel vision, right? Like when I'm thinking about just you and me in the conversation that we're having, I'm thinking about either maybe I feel like a team player, I'm doing you a favor, or maybe just the pressure of that situation. And I, you know, who's to say what really happened in that conversation, but maybe the pressure in that situation was just so much that you miss the sort of broader picture and what that really means. And, you know, there's work showing that so much of the corruption and unethical behavior that happens in organizations is done through people, right? It's indirect sort of way where, you know, people at the top are asking other people to do it. So they're never actually getting their hands dirty. And then there's a sense that the people below could say no, right? Like that Moody's representative could have said no, but what a lot of the work I talk about shows is that's just so much harder than we tend to realize when we're not in that position. And so basically what you need is organizational constraints that more or less prevent people from being nice and, and generous, right? And in that selective way. So it's about depersonalizing those interactions to override this inherent maybe generosity that we might have in, in circumstance. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. Much in the way that sort of Don Moore and Max Bazerman and them have talked about the ways in which to de-bias the accounting world if there's more sort of formal 
constraints and less of this just one-on-one. We make decisions like in that moment that probably would be helpful in some way. You also referenced kind of literature on power and how when you're in positions of power, you are almost unaware of the consequences of that power. Could you talk a bit more about that and your perspective on that research? Sure. So, you know, this a lot of this work is based on Adam Galinsky and his coworkers' work. So some of it shows basically that when we're in positions of power, we are less inclined to take the perspective of other people, particular people who are in, you know, lower positions of power. And it's simply because we really don't need them. Like if we're in power, we have all the resources. So we're not trying to like maneuver and understand other people's motivations to get the resources because we're in control of them. Whereas if you're in a position of low power, you really have to understand how to get that person above you to share their resources. And then the other sort of piece of having power is this sense that there are fewer situational constraints, right? So there's less of the press of the situation, as the social psychologists love to say. So like there's the classic study where people who were primed with power, when there was an ambiguous situation involving an annoying fan that was blowing on them, if you felt like you were in a position of power, you just moved the fan. You didn't worry about it. You didn't go and ask someone if you could. You just did it. And so what happens then is that when I'm in a position of my request is so much stronger than if I'm not, right? If I'm going to ask someone for something, it's a lot harder for them to say no to me if I'm in a position of power. But I'm less likely to take their perspective and recognize how hard it would be for them to say no to me. At the same time, I would feel more comfortable saying no to somebody because I'm in this position of power. I don't feel this pressure of the situation. And I sort of overextend that feeling to them. And so it, it's, again, this sort of perfect storm where just when I have more influence, the least likely to recognize how hard it is for other people to resist it. And so that can lead to all sorts of problematic. So does that mean that the kind of fundamental attribution error is something that more powerful people are more likely to fall prey to? They're going to decontextualize the situation of the less powerful and just assume that the less powerful are doing what their inclinations are and, and what their choices are and, and not think too carefully about the constraints that they're under? I think so. I don't know of research, and I'm curious if there is research on the fundamental attribution error specifically, but I do know that Pam Smith and her former student have a really interesting paper where they have people in positions of power or they prime them with power, they manipulate power in some way. And they ask them whether someone basically was personally responsible for getting in a traffic jam that made them late to a meeting. And so when you are primed with power, you're more likely to say that was that person's fault as opposed to the situation. And so I think that would suggest that's true, that you're not, you're discounting the situation even more because for yourself, you're discounting the situation. So you're over applying that to other people. Well, I think most people would agree that kind of perspective taking is a good thing and that perspective taking will help you to understand people and become more empathetic towards them and presumably motivate kind of better, more other regarding behavior. But I think you, you talk a bit about kind of the limitations of perspective taking and that you know, as an abstract exercise, maybe it's not as effective as we might think. How can we strengthen our kind of perspective taking muscles, <laughs> both for to understand the power that we have and to use it responsibly, but also to understand the position of the people that we're interacting with and you know the power that they might have and the perspective they might take. How do we really strengthen that muscle? And is there a way that we can do it that's not purely abstract exercise, but something that will really deeply influence how we view the world? 
Yeah. So a lot of the limitations of perspective taking come from work by Nick Epley and his coworkers who have, or his coworkers, his co-authors who have talked about how when we try to take someone's perspective, we're basically always searching our own minds. So I feel like I can really get into your head and be more accurate about how you're feeling, but I'm never actually asking you what's going on in your head. And so I wind up being wrong when I try to guess how you're feeling. If someone says, if I were you, what they're really doing is they're, they're saying, if I were in your shoes, not if I were you, but if I were in your context, right? Yeah. Or basically, if you were me in this, and I was in that situation. So you're kind of, and when we do this, right, we bring up stereotypes that we might have of people, our ideas about another person that may not be true. We also bring our own baggage from our own experiences. So for example, Lauren Nordgren and his co-authors also have this work showing that basically if we've been in the same experience as another person and they don't come out of it in the same way, that we judge them even more. So we expect people, if I went through a divorce, I expect you you going through a divorce to have the same feelings that I did, and which is an unrealistic expectation. And so really the sort of simplest answer that Epley and his colleagues give is to ask people, is to get out of your own head, that as long as you're searching your own head to try to figure out what other people are thinking and feeling, you're going to be inaccurate. And the only way to truly know what someone's feeling is to ask them. And there is work showing that people are more willing to be forthcoming with a lot of their feelings than than we tend to think. Although it can be difficult when you're, as you said, if we want to know the impact we have on someone, if we're someone's boss, in those cases, they might not be entirely comfortable sharing something sensitive with us. And so the idea is to find ways that still get outside information that allows someone to open up so we're not just only basing it on our own assumptions. So it could be surveys, it could be talking to coworkers, it could be asking someone directly, and it could be as simple as reading other perspectives, exposing ourselves to other types of perspectives so we're not just basing our ideas on our own sort of assumptions. So in the, in the HR literature, they talk about kind of people feeling comfortable bringing their whole selves to work. And part of that is the employers and bosses should learn to listen and open themselves up. But, you know, at some point, doesn't that get intrusive? At what point does that become invasive? People don't necessarily want to share everything about themselves, about their personal lives and and so forth in, in that environment. How can you listen to people? I mean, how can you interrogate people without making them uncomfortable and being overly aggressive in your use of power. Listening listening is presumably giving them the opportunity to take the initiative with respect to what they want to share. Asking may feel like a burden that's imposed on people, right? Yeah. And I do think on top of that too, asking the answer may be given to please the boss, like whatever you think the boss wants to hear. This is where it gets, you know, I feel like you need a concrete example sort of to figure out like in this particular case, here might be the best way to ask. I think there's ways to get that information anonymously, potentially. Part of it is just taking a step back. I think, as you said, like interrogating probably usually isn't the best way. Taking a step back, opening up the voices in the room so that, you know, if you say something, especially if you're the boss in many of these situations, if you say something, most people won't go against you. So simple things like speaking last, letting everybody else have a discussion about an issue before you jump in with your opinion. And then other things are, you know, again, it depends on the specific context or the specific topic. But like if you're in a meeting, if actually making sure everyone has a chance to speak. So you're hearing all the different voices and not just assuming that 
the two people who didn't speak just agreed with the group. So giving everybody sort of a chance. So anything, again, that gets more voices out there so you're not in the echo chamber of your own head. But it is tricky, and it probably depends on the specific sort of topic. Vanessa, is fascinating. And we have these classes on power and influence, and it's usually about understanding how to get more power and influence. And I think before we even go there, we should start with understanding exactly what power and influence we already have. And, And I think in your book, you really highlight that and force us to think about it. So thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You have more influence than you think, how we underestimate our power of persuasion and why it matters. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.